Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's so good to worship with you and to be in the Word of our Lord together. And just on behalf of our church in Weymouth, Massachusetts, want to extend uh, greetings in the name of the Lord to you from them. But also just want to express on behalf of the church our gratitude uh, for not only your faithfulness, uh, your concern for the Lord and His glory and His gospel, but also for the ways that you've prayed for us and supported us financially. Uh, you know, when you're doing fundraising, you're often asking churches and trying to persuade them to consider to supporting your effort, and there's so many good things to support in this world. Um, your church actually came to us. Uh, they took the first step to us, toward us, to ask how they could help and support, and so deeply grateful. and. Uh, because of your prayers and your support, the Lord has done a good work in Weymouth. Look forward to sharing a little bit more with you uh, this evening. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 74. Psalm 74. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, probably just open up right into the middle and you'll find the Psalms. Psalm 74. I'm sure that if everyone here listed uh, their favorite things to do, that no one would have waiting on their list. I don't think I've ever met anyone who enjoys waiting. You know, little kids struggle to wait for their birthdays. We don't even like to wait at red lights. Uh, waiting for, uh, to hear back about medical test results can feel like torture or waiting to hear about a job, or if you got into that program at, at a school or university, it can feel like eternity. Waiting is a normal part of our lives that most of us find difficult, and yet when you think about it, we spend most of our lives waiting for something good, or waiting for the Lord to lift a burden. And so this is true throughout our Christian lives that we find ourselves waiting, that from the moment you become a Christian, you find yourself waiting on the Lord to answer specific prayers, to sanctify you, to fulfill His promises. And this can be difficult for Christians, and I'm sure every Christian in this room has experienced some degree of confusion, maybe even discouragement after a period of waiting on the Lord. And in some cases, Prayer itself can become wearisome. Hope can begin to fade. You begin to ask yourself, will the future taste as bitter as the present? Will it always be this bad? How long, oh Lord? And we hear these questions asked by faithful people throughout the Bible as they grow weary under the waiting of what makes no sense to them. And this psalm, it asks those questions. And it, it specifically is, is looking at um, something unique. The question it's asking is, why does God wait so long to act when his own name is being dragged through the mud and his people along with it? That's the question of this psalm. How do we wait for God to defend his name, to restore his people, to purify his worship? This psalm helps us as we wrestle with that question. 
invite you to read along with me, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 74. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. And they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revive? You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the inhabitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day. Do not forget the, calamity, the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those, uh, those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. And this is what we call a psalm of lament. And there are um, dozens of these psalms throughout the Bible where the people of God express their questions, their confusion, their pain after experiencing the difficulties of life in a fallen world. And this psalm is a little unique in that this is a community lament, a congregational lament. And so the people of God are expressing their lament and their concern and their weariness before the Lord as a congregation. We see that in the opening verses where we read, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Or verse 2, remember your congregation. So the, the good old days are but a distant memory, and the faithful mourn together as they wait upon the Lord to vindicate his name and purify his worship and restore his people. And, and so the psalm not only gives voice and expression, gives us words, to the difficulty of waiting on the Lord, but it also teaches us how to wait. 
how to wait for the Lord to vindicate his name and purify the worship of the churches and, re- and build up his church. And the psalm teaches us that the best place for the people to do that, the best place for the people to wait on the Lord is together in prayer. And so how do we get there? What moves us from the edge of despair to our knees in confident prayer? That's what I hope you walk out of here this morning from this sermon. And the sermon in a nutshell is that it's hope in God's salvation. That's what moves us from the edge of despair to confident prayer. And as we work through the Psalms, we'll see three looks for a waiting church. Begins with this um, honest look at the present, which is pretty grim. And then there's this hope-producing look back at the past. And then it ends with this prayerful look forward to the future. First, this honest look at the present. You know, we hear the sounds of lament in those opening two questions. In verse 1, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? These are obviously um, heavy questions. Uh, they reveal much confusion, much pain. Lord, Lord, why is this happening? And, and will it always be this bad? And these questions are really the tip of the iceberg because verses 2 to 11 reveal the circumstances under these questions that are generating the que- these questions from the people. And so the, what this psalm doesn't do, it doesn't ask a question and then step back and answer it. Instead, what it does is it takes us inside to feel the burden of longing to be in the presence of God again. It, it puts us on scene so that we can see the sights, hear the sounds, feel the burden of a ruined people in silence worship. See that in verse 3, where they say, direct your steps to the perpetual ruin. The enemy has destroyed everything in this, in this sanctuary. Lord, direct your steps. Come see what we see. See this mess. See what's become of your people in your temple. Verse 7, they set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name. Lord, direct your steps. Look what's become of the place. It was meant to reflect your holy name. It appears that this psalm is describing one of the most significant events uh, in biblical history, uh, what we call the exile in 587 B.C., that after generations and generations of the Lord sending prophets to his people, warning them and wooing them, warning them and wooing them, after generations of their unfaithfulness and their idolatry, the Lord brought judgment upon his people through the hands of the Babylonians. And they came and they, they defeated Judah and they destroyed Jerusalem. They filled the temple with their idols. And the people were dragged off away from the land. And now they cry out in the middle of this, How long, O oh Lord? How long will you let this happen? And you can understand their struggle because on the one hand, verse 1, they know that we are the sheep of your pasture, Lord. Verse 2, remember Mount Zion where you dwelt. Lord, there was a time when we dwelt together in worship in Mount Zion. But on the other hand, everything has been destroyed and the Lord has not yet rebuilt what is broken. And they cry out, how long? I think we really feel the weight of their burden there in verse 9. But we do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. 
How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Mentions signs there. Uh, The temple was a sign of God's presence, God's protection. It reminded the people that, that they were a people redeemed by the grace of the Lord, brought into his presence because of his love, that he forgave their sins, that he kept his promises and fulfilled his promises. And the temple itself was filled with all this symbolism, like the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the altars, the golden lampstands. And, and the, uh, the temple was filled with these beautiful wood carvings of, uh, of flowers and palm trees and cherubim. You can read about that in, um, in, Ac- in uh, 1 Kings 6. And they appeared to be images of wood carvings of the Garden of Eden, that original dwelling place where God was with his people. And so it was a beautiful place that reflected some of the beauty and the glory and the splendor of the living God. But now it's been destroyed by these maniacs who have come like wrecking balls and just crashed through the temple, destroying it. Verse 5, they were like those who swing axes in the forest. They're like crazed lumberjacks in all its carved wood. That's the carved wood in the temple. They broke down with hatchets and hammers. Verse 8, and they said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. And they, they, uh, they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. And so you can hear the madness on their own lips. They revel in their evil as they try to eliminate any memory that at one point the God of heaven dwelt in a unique way with his people in that place. It might be helpful to um, imagine their struggle and their pain if you think about uh, a, a physical space that had a lot of significance and meaning to you, a place that's filled with good memories. Maybe it's your childhood home or a, a place that you went on vacation on a regular basis when the kids were young, a church building from the past or a college campus or something like that. Now, imagine that it's been destroyed. But not just destroyed, but destroyed in a way that was meant to humiliate it, belittle it, mock it. Now imagine you're standing there looking at it, remembering what it was and what it stood for, and now what it's become because of evil people. And then imagine hearing the sounds of their joy and their delight as they destroy it. Well, what happened here is even worse because this was God's house. This was the place where God dwelt with his redeemed people. And so the questions of verse 1, these do not express, you know, unbelief or accusation against God, but rather these are uh, expressing confusion and despair in the face of devastation. This is a, a burdened congregation. These are tired and weary souls waiting on the Lord with no end in sight, and they have a lot of questions, but they don't have many answers. And just as a quick aside, even though this is a a corporate lament over desecrated worship, the Psalms are filled with individual laments over personal suffering that really echo some of these same questions. And we should learn from that, that expressing our sadness, questions, our grief, our lament before the Lord is not opposed to faith. 
but it actually is a way that we exercise our faith as we bring these things before the Lord, not without accusation, but even still with questions and with burdens. And actually expressing our lament before the Lord is an essential way that we wait on the Lord in personal trials. Well, now that we have our kind of hands wrapped around the circumstances of the psalm, I think it would be helpful to look again at what the psalm emphasizes. What was this, the, the main concern for the people? And it's not what we probably had expected to be for a people whose lives have been turned completely upside down and inside out at the hands of evil people. The main concern here is the worship and glory and name of the living God. We see that developed throughout the psalm, verse 10. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? In verse 7, they profane the dwelling place of your name. Verse 4 makes it clear that this is a concern for worship. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. Uh, their own signs probably being um, their, the idols, the images of their gods. And so what would happen back then is if your nation defeated another nation in battle and kind of overtook the land and the space, you would set up your idol in the place where the other nation's image of their god happened to be or where their sacred space was. And so the situation is that in the temple, the very dwelling place of the living god, where he was worshipped. It's now filled with pagan idols. And so this is not just a weary people, but this is ruined worship. It's not just a burdened people, but this is silenced worship. Well, what can we learn from this? I think we could learn that we should be grieved when God is not worshipped, and we should long to be in his presence. And so here's what the psalm forces us to ask of ourselves. How do I feel when God is not worshipped? How does it sit with me? Have I grown too comfortable with the ways that God is dishonored around me? Am I unsettled when Christ is dishonored? You know, there are a lot of things that concern us in our lives, and some of those are, are appropriate and understandable and right, and some of them can be also petty. And this psalm presses on something we may not think about, a concern we may not spend a lot of time thinking about. The praise and the glory and the worship of God. So I just want to talk briefly here about two often overlooked reasons to lament. First, that true worship has been silenced. God deserves worship. It is due his great name. It just fits hand in glove that his creatures made by him would praise him. As the only God, not only as our maker and our sustainer of our lives, but also as our redeemer, he's worthy of our praise. And this is ultimately why we gather for corporate worship on the Lord's Day. It's why we plan churches, send out missionaries. It's why we share the gospel, disciple our children. There's other good reasons to do that, that people would be saved, that people would grow in their faith. 
But the ultimate reason, the main reason for corporate worship and great commission work is that so that God would be worshipped and treasured and adored. And that means that the work of making and training disciples through biblically ordered churches is directed at the most valuable, important, praiseworthy person, Jesus Christ. And that means the church needs to have a laser focus on addressing the greatest injustice in the world, that Jesus is not worshipped in the world that belongs to him. So true worship has been silenced. The second reason to lament is that false worship has replaced it. Think, talk a little bit more about that uh, probably this evening, but living in New England, this is just kind of in your face all the time. I don't know if you know the history, spare you a lot of the details, but at one place, at one time, it was the Bible Belt of America. One place, it, one time it was filled with thriving, healthy churches with Puritan doctrine. And now it's just a distant memory, just a faint echo. In just a few short generations, that's all but gone. The only time you don't have Boston traffic is on a Sunday morning, because everyone's sleeping. And church buildings have either been knocked down or converted into condos or office space. And so many of the churches that still have buildings, they might have the word Christ on the sign in the front lawn, but there's no Christ in the pulpit. There's false gospels preached, unholy living is celebrated, disordered worship, Bibles collecting dust in the attic. Maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but it's kind of a modern equivalent to Psalm 74. And I know this doesn't just happen in New England. I'm sure it happens here and other parts of the country and throughout the world. And should we not mourn that Christ is not worshipped in the places that are meant to bear his name. And should there not be at least times in our Christian life, I understand we can't live here always, we drive ourselves crazy, but should there not be times in our Christian lives where we just feel this kind of grumble in the pit of our soul where we say, how long, O oh Lord, will you let this happen? Or maybe it's not a place, maybe it's a people. A person, someone in your life who you love, who at one point in their life appeared to be walking with the Lord, but they are no longer. And you pray and you wait. And you pray and you wait and nothing happens. How long, O oh Lord? Maybe it's not a person, but a, a church that you were part of in the past. A church that uh, played a, a central role in your life as a Christian, but it was torn apart by sin or scandal or infighting or false doctrine, and the Lord has yet to rebuild it and to purify it. And you wonder, how long, O oh Lord? And so the psalm teaches us that this is common to Christian experience, that we would at times find ourselves weary under the waiting as we wait for Jesus to vindicate his name and to make his bride beautiful again. There's a danger in that because we can grow too weary under the waiting and hopelessness and discouragement can begin to settle upon us. And this seems to be what happened in this 
congregation here in Psalm 74. They have walked right up to the very edge of despair, standing over the cliff about to, about to fall off into utter hopelessness. But it's there on that edge of despair where we hear a cry of faith in the king. And the whole psalm pivots, this big hinge in verse 12, as we move from this honest look at the present problem to this hope-producing look back at the past. Look at verse 12. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Notice there's not only a, a change in tone in the psalm from lament to hope, there's also a change in person. The beginning of the psalm was corporate, it was us, congregation. But this one, God is my king. It's almost like an individual has kind of arises out of the rubble of the ruined people of God with a cry of hope and faith in the king. It's as if this congregation is about to walk off the cliff of despair until one person grabs them by the back and pulls them back and says, no, 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 remember the king, that God is working his salvation in the midst of the earth. I think as church members, that this is um, not only your privilege, but it's also your responsibility to do this for one another that when current circumstances blind someone from God's faith, his past faithfulness and his salvation, that in a, a wise, gentle, gracious way to remind them that they can hope in the king who is working his salvation in the midst of the earth. And that's what this person does for this congregation. He takes them back for a moment just to remember God's rule and his rescue. And as he does this, the, the sad lament gives way to this beautiful poetry as he stands in awe of the greatness of God despite the mess around him. And he gives a few examples there in verses 13 to 17. Uh, verse 14, you crush the head of Leviathan. People aren't positive what he's talking about there, but it's probably about a way of, of speaking about God's sovereign reign as king over the pagan nations. Uh, one uh, common god of the time was this serpent-like monster. And for a people who had just watched an idolatrous nation destroy everything that was important to them and set up idols in the temple of God, they needed to be reminded of God, that God is the sovereign ruler even over the so-called nation, gods of the nations. Uh, 15 to 17, he switches from talking about uh, God reigning as king over the, over the nations to talking about God reigning over nature, his creation. And there he's talking about God setting boundaries for, for seasons and for times and, and separating spaces out and bringing order to his creation. The idea seems to be that just like God was able to bring order to his world for the good of his people, that he again in the future can bring order out of what seems so broken and so chaotic to his people. I do just want to zoom in on, on one of these examples, in particular, verse 13. And spent all the time thinking about that. It says, you divided the sea by your might and broke the heads, the sea monsters, on the waters. 
a poetic way of, of describing the crossing of the Red Sea during the Exodus. And the Egyptian army is pictured here as a sea monster being destroyed by the floodwaters of God's judgment that fell and crashed down upon them and destroyed his enemies. And this would have probably landed powerfully on Israelite readers for, for two reasons. First, in a general sense, um, the, in the biblical poetry, the sea, uh, the, the, the chaotic waters are be, this image of uncontrollable, untamable kind of forces of evil that oppose the people of God and even used to describe death itself. Uh, the Israelites were a land-dwelling people. They didn't do water. Water was uncontrollable, unpredictable, and untamable. So it becomes this image in Hebrew poetry for the forces of evil and things out of control of the people of God. And you just think about even with all of our technology that the sea is this uncontrollable enemy to be feared. It can cause devastation in a moment. You just watch YouTube videos of these big tidal waves crashing down upon these small islands, and, and just in a few moments, they can destroy everything. And so it's this kind of untamable, uncontrollable, scary force of nature, and yet God just splits it. He just tames it. He controls it. He's mighty over it. He even uses it for his purposes. You just think that there's just so much out of our control in Christian mission and ministry. How many obstacles there are to the gospel that we can't remove. How helpless we feel. We can't even change the hearts of our own children. The church has always seemed so weak and frail in the face of persecution. We can't control the winds of culture that just keep blowing against us in such a godless direction. But God can, and God will in his time, that the history of redemption revealed in the word and also God's hand throughout church history, his providential hand throughout church history is proof that God reigns as king over what is so uncontrollable and untamable for his people. Second, though, in a specific sense, verse 13 should make us think of the Exodus where God divided the water so his people could go through. So it's not just that God is mighty enough to control what's out of our control, but he actually uses those very things for our salvation. And so it's particularly in those moments when everything so, seems so hopeless that we need to make verse 12 our cry of faith. Yet God is my king, not just a king, but he's my king. And he's from of old. He's working his salvation in the midst of the earth. And so there's the cry of faith. Faith looks beyond current circumstances to the God of heaven who has proven himself to be a mighty and powerful and good redeemer. That's what faith does. And so the psalmist takes the people back in this psalm to that great moment of Old Testament redemption, the Exodus, and he says, let's go back even in our lament and let's behold the king in his saving power. 
And as Christians, we look back to that great moment in the history of redemption that the Exodus was actually pointing forward to and foreshadowing. Look back to the cross where the king came in flesh and blood incarnation to accomplish our salvation. We could say by letting the floodwaters of God's judgment crash upon him in our place. And when we think about the cross, of course, we should be thinking about sacrifice and atonement for our sins. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. The most important thing you need to know about the cross is this is where Jesus satisfied the justice of God against our sin by dying not for his sins because he didn't have any, but for the sins of his people. And he has promised to be an all-sufficient and lovely Savior, a merciful and kind Savior for all of our sins. To anyone who comes to him with the empty hands of faith to receive him as the only Savior. And he promises to reconcile all those who do to God as their Father. But that's not the only thing that the Bible says about the cross. It also says that on the cross, this is actually how the king dealt a death blow, a knockout punch to the powers and the forces that oppose God and his people. And so you think of um, Colossians 2, where Paul's talking about the cross of Christ, and he says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so the cross stands as this objective, historical, immovable sign of the victory of God over sin and Satan. And so God has already worked his salvation in the midst of the earth in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we wait for the fruit of that victory to fully ripen when he returns. And it's in that hope that we pray as the church, come Lord Jesus. You know, the the question of this psalm, how long, O Lord, psalm doesn't answer it, but the king does answer it. Remember how the Bible closes some of the final words of King Jesus to the church? How long, O Lord? I'm coming soon. And it's in that confidence that we pray, well, then come, Lord Jesus. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We turn to pray for God to act in keeping with and according to his promises that he has revealed in the word. And that's what this congregation does, or at least that's how this psalm ends. It ends with a prayerful look to the future. And so here's what the psalm is doing. Begins by saying, come grieve with us about the ruined state of the people of God. And then it says, come hope with me in the God of our salvation. And then in this final movement it says, all right, now go pray together for God to act. And that's the path that he wants us to take, because that's the path that we need to take. That if you're going to pray the way this psalm ends, with passion and with heart, with integrity, then you need to be clear on and wide-eyed about the current state of things. That Christ is not worshipped in the world that he has made. And feel the weight of that and to grieve it. 
But then you need to come with renewed, fresh hope in the Lord. And then the church is ready to pray for God to act in according with his purposes and for his glory. And so the congregation moves as the psalm progresses from this crippling lament to confident supplication. And we don't have time to get into all the specifics of verses 18 to 23, but the the gist of it is, and the two main prayer requests are, God, defend your name. Verse 18, remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and foolish people reviles your name. So, Lord, verse 22, arise, O God, defend your cause. Defend your name, Lord. Second, deliver your people so that you would be praised. Verse 19, do not deliver the souls of your dove to the wild beast. The people of God are like a dove. The enemies are like wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Or verse 21, let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Defend your name. Deliver your people so that you would be praised. And so we can see here, as the psalm comes to an end, the theme hasn't changed. It's still about the name of God and the worship of God. But something's changed. The people have changed. They're no longer feeling helpless under their circumstances, but they are now together pleading with God to act in accordance with his purposes. Verse 20, have regard for the covenant. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that the best place for the people of God to wait is to gather in prayer. I want you to imagine something for a moment. Just imagine your church planned a corporate prayer meeting this coming Saturday night. And the purpose of this prayer meeting was to plead with the Lord as a congregation for him to purify the worship and the churches and the word that they preach and the gospel they proclaim in your area, maybe in your state, to plead with the Lord to reveal his wisdom through healthy churches and that the character of Christ would be reflected through purified, gospel-loving, healthy churches all around your state. What would keep you from coming to that prayer meeting? What might be missing in the equation of this psalm that would keep you at home? Is it the first part? A lack of awareness about the current state of things? Or maybe the second part, so discouraged by the present state of things that you've lost your hope in the king? What keeps this prayer from becoming your prayer? Just think throughout the history of redemption, God has accomplished his great eternal purposes often through the prayers of his people. That God has ordained all things from eternity, decreed all things from eternity, but he's not only decreed the end, but also the means to those ends. And one of the means that he just delights to use is the prayers of his people. And so sometimes people hear about the sovereignty of God and they think, well, then why should I bother praying? It's like, no, no, no. It's precisely because the people of God believe at the core of their being that God is sovereign king. 
and he's working his salvation in the midst of the earth that they gather to pray for God to act in their day in a way that would bring him glory. And it's not a coincidence that that usually happens when the people of God have walked right up to the edge of despair, have been weaned off of a love for this world, confronted with their helplessness in the face of opposition, and left with one hope. To come together and to cry out, O Lord, defend your name and deliver your people and do it in our day so that you would be praised. So you wonder what will come of a prayer meeting like that. What will come of prayer meetings, Psalm 74-like prayer meetings in, in your church and in my church? If we gathered feeling the urgency of the problem in the moment, and with fresh, renewed hope in the king of our salvation. Well, maybe instead of wondering, we should just find out. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise and glory and stand in awe of your greatness. Father, we do confess that at times the mystery of your providence and why you allow certain things befuddles us and even brings us to the edge of discouragement. And yet, Lord, you are so faithful to remind us you are a good and kind and faithful redeemer who never breaks a promise and always keeps his word. We're so thankful, Father, that we have a certain hope, a sure hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that he will return in great power and glory to vindicate his name, to deliver his people, we pray, Father, that he would do it soon. And until that day, we would have a great burden and concern for the purity of his church, for the truth of his word. And Father, I pray that through this congregation, you would continue to receive the praise and the honor that's due your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.